What is up, ladies and gentlemen of the internet? My name is Jade, joined today by my good friend and colleague, Simon Anderson, and the most amazing disability advocate in the universe, if you don't mind me saying, Huhana, Dr. Huhana Hickey. How are you, Hu? Oh, good. Killed everybody. How are you? First time on the Jade Farrah Show, hopefully not the last. Um, this is an amazing opportunity. We're going to talk about the two referendums. We're going to discuss the disability sector in general and dig deeper into your views about the future of disability in this country. But before that, I'll hand over to Simon to say hello to everybody. Kia ora whanau, kia ora, kia ora. thank you Huhana for joining us, it's good to have somebody else to share the spotlight with finally, uh, yeah, the conversation can get a little dull with Jade so it's good to have somebody to bring some, some wow, low, low blow already, low blow already, not feeling good about the, that, you're trying to get those clickbait viral clips, <laughs> giving you some, giving you some uh, titles for your new videos. Uh, Simon, we do have a question of the day, which I didn't even tell Huhana about. But before we get to that, Huhana, for those at home that have never met you before or don't know the work you do and the amazing history you have in New Zealand, could you tell the people at home a little bit about yourself? Sure. Kia ora, everybody. Uh, my name's Huhana. I'm from Waikato. Uh, my iwi is um, is is Waikato. Um, Tainui Waka. I'm from Nati Tahinga, which is the hapu on the west coast, which is between Raglan and uh, Port Waikato. So we've got the best view, and it's the best seafood as well. The Kaimoana that way is far better. Um, and of course, I'm biased in that attitude. Um, <laughs> but uh, what am I? I'm a 58 year old. I'm a I'm a mum. I'm a nana. Um, I have a fantastic family and i guess without that i wouldn't have the support i have but mm. i really appreciate what they do for me because you don't do things in isolation we do it together collectively and that's what i love so i guess my background i've got a background and i studied i did a bachelor of social sciences majoring in, in psychology a bachelor of laws then i did a master's in laws of first class honors and then i did a phd in law in tikanga maori Solicitor for Auckland Disability Law, resigned from there, um, and I've done a whole host of other stuff. I've been at AUT as an academic, I've got my own company now, um, but none of it's profit-making because uh, we tend to focus on community initiatives. So, you know, and, and it is what it is. I mean, I could have gone down that corporate road, but I chose to go down the human rights people road, and mm. I have no regrets for it, except that I haven't got a castle, a Rolls Royce, <laughs> or a uh, super yacht, but... Apart from that, I'm happy. <laughs> I'm Apart still working on my super yacht, who, may I say. Uh, <laughs> but for now, that that's really great. Thank you for the introduction. Um, who I need to tell you as part of the show, uh, the Wednesday podcast, we always have a question of the day. Now, it's not necessarily to arrive at an answer, but more to generate debate and discussion for ourselves here on the stream, but also... For the people at home in the chat so if you don't mind i'd like sure. to pose the question of the day now and i'm going to put that on screen so the question of the day is why do we need a disability support system why do we need 
a disability support system and i suppose to not put pressure on you who i might go to simon and then hannah first off go for it yeah. go, hannah. <laughs> oh jade your question making ability makes up for your weak chat now that's great <laughs> 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 oh why do we need a disability support system yes <clears throat> I just want to chuck that it big. It depends in front of it, like always. Um, the system, it doesn't matter who sets it up and who runs it. Well, it does. It just depends. It influences the success of the outcomes. But I disability support system is necessary because our disabled people uh, wouldn't be able to manage without a support system in place. I, myself, as an able-bodied human, have a support system it's not it's not uh, formally recognized and it's not often funded or it's funded by myself but i have a support system um i suppose i'm trying to go a bit deeper though so why is yeah. society not universal for disabled people why do we need a disability support system i yeah well there's your there's your answer right there is because our <laughs> our society isn't accessible we all subscribe to the social model of disability here in this call and that's not a reality at the moment and it's far away from being a reality so a disability support system is necessary until every part of our government and public infrastructure uh, and and part of our public lifestyle is disability at least accessible and, and has that disability uh, factor included in everything they do then that that system's required until then amazing so hannah you've actually changed my answer right now um, why do we need a disability support system <laughs> hannah we need a disability support system right now in 2020 because locally and right now our country socially it does not subscribe to the social model yep. so we cannot be ourselves and we do need that support system yep. it's hard to get across roads but all i want is not to need yep. a support system and to have that choice and control and just say i want to hire somebody to come around to my house and clean and do whatever i need not actually have to go through a particular disability support. Thank you, Hannah. And Doctor Who, if you would humour uh, us here at the Jade Ferris Show and the community at home, uh, why do you think we need a disability support system? No brainer. I mean, I grew up in a time when everyone was being institutionalised. So I never met a disabled person until I was at high school. And she was a young Vietnamese refugee. I'd never met an Asian person other than those in the grocery stores or dairies until then. It was that rare growing up in Taranaki, but that's a small town. But <laughs> we need it simply because there is no sustainability by providing, by putting us into institutions. There's no, it's not compassionate, it's cruel. And we are human beings the same as everybody else. Why not? It's that simple. Why can I not have the right to live my life the same as an able-bodied mm. person. Everyone experiences disabilities uh, at some time in their life. So to say that we're not entitled, and then they are when they suddenly become disabled, is hypocrisy. We need it, and we're entitled to it. We have that right. I, I certainly agree with that. And do you, do you think 
Do you think we should be nervous about the fact that society doesn't respond to us in a universal way? Are you worried about the fact that our our issues and our needs are siphoned off into one government department? I'm angry about it because they know to do better. Not one party has brought in a disabled person apart from the Greens, and they did that for one election. Now they happen to have a disabled person who hasn't been part of our community, but we have no commitment to ensure the voice of disabled are sitting there running our own ministries, our own services and our own communities. Um, we actually need to be doing a lot more than that, but uh, that's for a longer corridor. But basically, it's time that they gave us what we're demanding, because if they don't, we're going to get to a point where we're going to get so angry that they're not going to want us marching en masse onto Parliament next year, are they? Because that's the plan. That's amazing. So for the people at home, if you've got views around why we need a disability support system, we'd love to hear them in the chat. Just really quickly want to acknowledge Bob Meyer, Trip Fantasy, hey. and believe it or not, Satan in the chat right now. Thank you for being here, I think. Um, but for now... <laughs> and of course, we're just going to quickly, I'm just going to quickly interrupt. Why do you need a disability support system? And I'm in... I should say, in America. I know it doesn't yeah. apply to you guys so much, but in America, for you guys. So, so we're gonna we're gonna get to the interview now. Who is gonna? It's gonna get real, real intense from here on in. Um, you hit me you, with it. You've got some clear, clear views about the referendum. I, I suppose yes. let let's start at the awkward place. Let's start with the end of life choice. Can you talk to the people at home about your position on the referendum and why? I am opposed to this bill. I'm not, I've made no bones about it. I'm opposed because it's an unsafe bill, both for those that seek euthanasia and those that don't. Both for the fact that disabled people who are also terminal in many cases, ALS, MS, uh, Parkinson's disease, motor neuron disease, muscular dystrophy, um, and yet there's no safety measure of offering options to people that wish to live in dignity, and there's no safety options for pe options for people that wish to die in dignity. I know for a fact the poison that they're planning to put into people to end their life in New Zealand has had adverse reactions when people have died. One guy took 20 hours to die writhing in pain. So if you want a good death, you need to be investigating further what that means. The other reason behind that is that disabled people are not seen equally. We've got eugenics rising its ugly head again in our country. Now, Truby King and Lord Plunkett were leaders of eugenics in New Zealand back at, in the last century. And we also had, of course, Aktionti for Hitler and eugenics. And that was under a voluntary euthanasia plan to begin with, where well over 350,000 of our disabled were killed by Hitler through the fact that the nurses and doctors believed that what they were doing was compassionate and love. And when you listen to people and you read the debates, there's an awful lot of eugenics arguments in there. It's not just about people dying of cancer. There's a whole lot of ways that you become terminal. We're all terminal from the day we're born. From the first breath we take, we're leading towards the end of our life. And let's get real about that. Life is hard. Life is absolute shit sometimes. And for some of us, it's harder than for others. That is life. It's hard. I am pro-choice, but I will not watch my community be thrown out and sold out 
for a bunch of people that wish to have the option if they've got that time and the money and the affluence to turn around and choose when they're going to die. I think people think that there's going to be this utopia or this romantic movie version of how you're going to die. Oh, I'm going to request it. I'll have my family surrounding me and they will just provide me with the poison and I will just go to sleep. Um, it does happen in some cases, but in a lot of the cases, it's more complex. I mean, we're not single units, okay? It is about individual rights. But if you're a person of colour, or if you're a person who comes from Eastern Europe, if you come from Asia, if you come from indigenous communities, we're a collective people. We can't escape from that. In Asian culture, for instance, in Korea, they have a family leader who makes the decisions on behalf of the family. They are chosen for their trust that the family have in them. Without that family leader, the families end up feeling confused and not sure. And so we haven't placed the cultural lens on this. The other reason is it's only 27 pages long. It's got no protections, okay? There's five protections sitting within the Victoria State um, Euthanasia Bill, which are good protections, providing expert witness, ensuring that there's penalties around people that do force coercion onto people, because human nature tells me that they do. And I know in my experience as a lawyer, yes, they do. Um, and we have rife abuse in this country of disabled, of elders, and we have one of the highest indigenous suicide rates. So when we are asking for euthanasia, we need to be sure that we're not only protecting the people that are living and giving them a dignity in life, but also those who wish to die. And the other issue there is we don't have a free palliative care system. It is unfunded. It must be fully funded. We must also fully fund our health and disability services, and we must fully fund PharmAct to ensure that the right medications are getting to people. Legalise cannabis, we'll talk about that in a moment, and then people have got the real options of life. Hey, I'd rather go out high and happy than go out with a poison. Um, I would rather go out with, um, I would want my whanau around me if I have to make a decision, and they would oppose it. If I have to make that decision and not have my whanau with me, then I will die lonely, and I don't want that. Just just to help me with this question, and I'll, I'll refer to Simon for any follow-up, but what would you say to people that say, you're taking away my choice, uh, the safe option, the medically endorsed option, to end my life if I want to, how dare you do that? Well, you're taking away my choice and my right to live with dignity as well. So we're both losing our choices. Um, that's not new. I don't want you to have to suffer. And I'll say that quite clearly. I have dealt with, um, well, well over 30 odd people who have died in my arms over the last 40 years. And I've, I've counted it as an honor. Not one of those people that I have cared for or had in my life as they've passed, not one of them suffered near the end. They all had a good death. And that's what euthanasia means. So not just seeking an injection or a poison to die. There's other ways of dying well. And you don't have to die writhing in pain. But the other thing too, the majority of those that are choosing to die in Canada, now that they've opened up to non-terminal disabled, the majority of them are seeking euthanasia, not because of pain, not because of suffering, but because it's a choice of desperation. They cannot get access to their disability supports, their health supports. And um, that's a huge problem. If we're going to legalise, and I absolutely want that choice for those that wish to choose it, we also must put in place real options because it's not a choice. 
it's not a real choice when you're doing it because you're scared or because you're a burden to your family. Let's be very clear here. Lucretia Seals was a fantastic woman, high-powered lawyer, had everything at her feet, a woman of privilege. She did not want her family wiping her bum. That was the issue for her, not pain. She was scared of dying. Everyone is, and that's natural. But it's about the family wiping her ass and caring for her at the end of her life. Now, in my culture, that's a huge honour to have that job. In Pacifica culture, generally, it's a huge honour. Yep. Our values yep. are slowly shifting as we move into this modern corporate world, but our traditional values, still we're still holding on to a lot of them. And so if we have no lens looking at that wider view, then how can you offer that? Do you want to die alone or do you want to die with your family surrounding you and supporting you? You need more time. There is no um, cooling down period. That's a huge problem. Four days. Now, when you're di diagnosed terminal, most of the people, every single one I know that I helped through that journey, every single one went through periods of depression, periods of anger. That is the Elizabeth Kubler-Ross process of grieving. You do it when you get a diagnosis. You do it if you get something happens in your life and shifts you. It's normal. It happens to all of us. And you do it when you get a terminal diagnosis. I had a good friend of mine last year in October, she passed. And I was there just as she got the verdict that she had two months to live. The look of fear in her eyes, and this was a strong Māori wahine of mana. She looked terrified. So for three hours, I sat with her and we talked through her fears, her journeys. And then at the end of it, she was not afraid anymore. She went on there. I made sure we got her into the, um, into the uh, hospice care. And then we got a registered nurse and got her back to Wellington to be with her whānau to pass away in their arms. And she did. A week later, she passed in their arms with her whānau surrounding her. A beautiful death because I organised as it was legal. I was able to get her cannabis. And I organised the cannabis. And she hadn't slept in three months. She had her first sleep. She rested. She was able to eat again. It was stomach cancer. She couldn't eat. And she was able to do everything that you'd want to do to be able to die well. And she did. And so there are other options. Palliative care is different to what it was 40 years ago. So don't dismiss it as an option. Look at all the options. But also, if euthanasia is that option, it should be the option of last resort. However, that's not my right to say. That is for the individual to make that decision with their doctor. But even the doctors are not comfortable. They're not trained into coercion. They don't know how to look for it. Uh, I am. I've had to deal with a lot of abuse claims with clients, and I, well, I can sniff it out like nobody's business, but a lot of people can't. So unless you have the skill to understand if it's their decision, you could be making um, the wrong one. When we had the death penalty, for instance, the reason we abolished it was because of wrongful deaths. If we still had the death penalty today, Tana Porter would be dead. Okay, there's no two ways about it. Innocent people would be dead as they are dying in America uh, from the executions. You know, you've got disabled, poor, people of colour. That's who it targets. You know the ones in Canada that are seeking it out of desperation? They are poor, disabled people. And it's not pain. It's desperation because they're being denied access to disabilities. So because our government hasn't sorted out the disability aspects of things, the funding and all the options that should be available to every citizen in this country, you shouldn't be having a law like this. It's only 27 pages. The Victorian's law is 111 pages full of protections. We need to protect people sometimes from other people.
Thank you. Who? I'll come to Simon now for any follow-up. <clears throat> yeah, thanks. Sir. I mean, you've basically taken the 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 bones of what I've <clears throat> excuse me said and had discussions with other um, colleagues and just fleshed it out more beautifully than I could ever have 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 done so. But for somebody who who I was talking to and just quite um, you know from a place of ignorant kindness, she's like, oh, you know, I thought this would be the passionate option to, to vote yes and I, and I said well you know what are what are the options of 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 choosing life for someone with a disability who's poor who's who's from a marginalized community what are the options that are being promoted to extend their life to improve their life you know there is a far wider way of we can improve people's lives and like you said for them to die gracefully and and have a good death and palliative care not being funded is probably mm -hmm. one of the biggest issues but yeah there's a lot of things that we should be campaigning just as hard as we are for this end of life choice bill but to improve people's lives before we give it make it easier for them to take their own life and i just yeah i, I yeah, thank you mm -hmm. for i guess giving me a lot more uh information I, it's hard to to ask if any part of that <laughs> you've missed um, I guess um, one point is, um, if you're really not sure, have a look on YouTube. There's one about the uh, the Nazi nurses, and it's a documentary, and it's an old one, but it's a good one because what it does is it highlights that these were ordinary people in the health profession, okay, so they know um, medicine, they know all of that, and they talked about that they believed, they honestly, sincerely believed in the message that was told to them that this was compassion, Okay, they believed as they were walking all the little disabled children into the gas chambers and killing them, that they believed what they were doing was an act of love. The whole reason why they're now upscaling the numbers of those that were killed in the Nazi Aktion T4 program is because they've now realised that there were a lot of nurses and doctors that killed the babies at birth, killed them in the medical, in the doctor's office or whatever, and then lied to the families. So they think that there was more 350 to 400,000 that were murdered that way. And the point is, is that a lot of people call it compassion. Now, the Japanese guy who murdered the 19 Japanese in 2016 that were disabled, he he's received the death penalty in March of this year, but he sincerely believed that he was doing God's work. Let's be clear about this. He believed that it was, it was his job to kill us because it was a compassionate act. He believed it was an act of love. So what we need to be very careful about is when David Seymour says compassion, he's not talking about love. Because in the very next breath, his next policy he has up is to cut health funding. You cannot have compassion in one hand for those who wish to die by lethal poison, but not have compassion for those who wish to live in dignity. I am opposed for that very reason. I'm not opposed to euthanasia as a concept. I'm opposed to, and I've always consistently said this with Marion Street's bill, with, with her petition and with his bill, well, it's actually an act, so we can't even change it. If 50% if of people vote for it, it's in. It's already got the royal assent, which is not heard of. We've never had that before. It is a binding referendum, so only 50%, and it's in as it stands, without protections. So be careful what you vote for, and for those that are pro, and I am aware, They've said, yes, they know it's unsafe. They've admitted it. These are disabled that are for it. They've said they recognise it's unsafe. So they don't really care about the rest of disabled. They're caring only about themselves. And the thing that they're saying is that they're voting for it because they don't want it to take another 30 years. Well, honestly, darling, I don't think the information is going to go away. 
Okay, amazing. I don't think the issue can go away. I do believe we're not going to resolve it if it passes or if it fails. That we need to come back to the table and find a consensus that is a middle ground that, that people can feel comfortable with. And people will feel comfortable with more safety measures in their act. Uhana, we've got a question here from Tandy yep. NZ in the chat, and I think you've gone some way to answer this already. But Tandy asks, what, resor what resources would you suggest to discuss euthanasia with people who are uninformed about the referendum, mm -hmm. but who don't want to read the proposed bill? I don't blame you. It's legal language, and that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm a lawyer. I love it. Um, but 27 pages, it was like 10 minutes of reading. I was like, oh, my God, I've never come across a piece of law that's that quick. Um, what you need to do is it needs to be in sign language. It needs to be an easy read. It needs to be in plain, everyday English, right? It needs to be in multiple languages because the other thing that the others, I did a Radio New Zealand podcast where we did the first broadcast where we did the first um, cultural take on it, a cultural lens on it. And what really struck me is it's not in multiple languages. People are voting on something that's binding without it being in those languages. And that's concerning. I've done mm. Deep Action. I've done uh, Radio New Zealand. Uh, last night I was on um, another one where it took an hour talking about it. Um, and what I've got to say is it's really concerning that our community are only just now getting the information when we've had record numbers of voters and so if you voted yes and you're now regretting it, it's too late. I'm sorry. If it gets in, it gets in. As a lawyer, I will uphold the letter of the law because that's my job. I don't judge based on the law. However, I will be monitoring very closely and pushing for those safety measures to be amended and put in. Yeah, I, I have very little to add to this debate. Simon obviously knows my view, but just so you know, I, I'm pro-life. So, yeah. so, so I like I like the dignity of living as long as you can. I I like the dignity of also being born. So, so, yeah. so, so that's where I am with that. Moving on to, oh, Hannah, you've got a question. I really appreciate what you have to say, actually, Hu. I think people, you're so right, and people do need to actually do that research. I'm lucky enough to actually have been able to have these direct conversations with people who've tried to change this and expand it but it's not clear cut which it's not right you know all for pro-choice but it's not a good bill mm, right no. now it needs to be improved so just don't mm. go and vote for it if you you like the idea and I think people are just thinking oh well out of dignity and I've heard people say also, oh, well, I might have said yes if I was suffering at the time, but actually, just just give me the right palliative care, give me the right um, pain relief, and then I pop up and I also knew somebody who, you know, was told they had two months and then lived another 20 years, so we need to think about yeah. all these things. Actually, Thank you. real fast before yeah. we go on and talk about the legalising cannabis referendum I, I i just wanted to know what would you say to a person and this is a genuine conversation that i had uh with a person who was very emotive and they actually stopped talking to me 
uh, once we got talking about the end of life choice referendum that they said that by ending their mother's life she would have had more dignity she didn't know where she was uh, she was scared confused dying of cancer and had dementia at the same time she thought she thought it was evil at that stage that her mother wasn't able to end her life what what would you say in response to that before we move on well it's a hard one because it's an ethical issue you cannot consent for your mother so in a nutshell if mum had never ever indicated that she was in favor of euthanasia um you cannot she can never ever be well she can't be consented under this act so even though she was terminal but because she lacked capacity and this is where you need an independent expert witness. You yep. need someone to ensure the safety and efficacy. Under today's palliative care, if it's properly funded, there is no reason why anybody would need to suffer like that. And um, honestly, I have seen, like, you know, I live, I mean, I had a bit of a giggle the other day because someone who's terminal but very pro hates the handicapped people with a vengeance because we're opposing, general, not all of us, but most of us are, um, she talked about five days of pain and I looked at my mate and said, five days, I wish. I live in extreme pain every single day. If it's if I don't, um, there are days when I actually look at my mate and I, it's happened recently and I go, my gosh, please just stop it, stop it now. And then you take your meds and you, you finally get to sleep. The next morning you wake up in a slightly better state and they'll look at you and go, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. You know, when the mukul's coming over. It, we change our minds. Human nature is. And there's a case in Belgium a woman with dementia, and she, under their laws, they can be euthanized because over there she had an advanced directive and she'd said that she would like to be euthanized if she ever is in that state. Well, the family decide, oh, we've had enough of mum now. It's time for her to go. She's starting to be a bit of a burden, you know. She's cramping our style with her dementia. So they took her to the doctor and the doctor started and the woman said, no, I'm not ready. I don't want it. Well, the doctor went ahead with the family holding mum down while she was screaming no and euthanized her. Now, it went to the coroner's inquiry. This was about 2016. It went to the coroner's. The coroner said yes. The lawyer broke the, the doctor broke the law, but she had good intentions. It went to court, and earlier this year they ruled that yes, the doctor broke the law, but she had good intentions. So what they've done is openly broken the law, but the, they allow it because they're very liberal over there. It changes people's ethics and values. It changes how they view life. The thing that we cannot escape with this euthanasia bill is that there's very much a eugenics attachment to it. We cannot escape the fact that disabled people are stuck under a eugenics lens a lot of the time. We saw it during COVID. I've seen it in the debates where the younger ones are now can't debate anymore because they're so broken. I even had a fellow lawyer break down and said, I can't do this anymore. They keep attacking me because he's a Catholic. And so I did it last night and on his place. And it, what is getting to me is you've got people messaging them, telling them to kill themselves that they are a burden to this world and that we're a waste of money. During COVID, what I was reading and hearing a lot was people telling us we were a waste of money, that money should be going to ABLED so that they can get the health care they need and that disabled are too expensive to sustain. And if that's society's attitude, well, you know what? It's not a safe act if we've got people in New Zealand thinking that way, and we do. And there's no mistaking that Seymour is a eugenicist in his comments in the past, before he reluctantly amended the bill to what he thought was going to make it safer, people go, but you're disabled, so you don't qualify. Well, disabled can be terminal. Oh, they lack capacity. Well, people who lack capacity can be 
terminal. Um, oh, but they're old, yes, and old people can get terminal. So we do absolutely need to have these conversations and we need more time. We need to come together. Nobody sorted out. Now in the last week, we're all having these corridor and people are going, oh my gosh, I hadn't realized. I even had a woman say yesterday that, um, oh, people in a vegetative state should be able to have it. I said, but they can't give consent in a vegetative state. And when I was 18, I was in a coma where they told my whanau that I would be, I was in the final stage of consciousness and I was never going to come back. Hello, that was when I was 18. That was 40 oh, years ago. And I would not be here to bug you all today if they had, if they'd turned off the life support at that time. Tuhana, this has been mind blowing, but we've got so much we need to yep, cover. Let's so, move on. so I wonder if I could hand over to Simon to bring us into the next bit. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jake. So, uh, the what is it? The legalization of cannabis bill. Yep. Yep. Uh, oh, and looks like oh. we've just lost Huhana. Oh, that's okay. I'll just switch this while I have oh, no, a look. Just... Oh, oh no! I'm back. Good. <laughs> we'll just, it, wait, come we'll, up we'll just wait for your video to come back on. Sure, we'll ask the question while we're waiting. Yeah, go right. ahead, Simon. Yeah, all right. Um, so the thing that most people are, ha are having trouble with the legalization of cannabis, I think it's a good place to start, yeah. is around inebriation, intoxication, workplaces, and the roading. So that's the issue. Even with my friends who yep. use cannabis, like I use it as well, my friends who use it, they still have issue with the fact that people will start, they think that people will all of a sudden start driving uh, just extremely stoned out of their mind and, and you know, have these 10 second delayed reactions or um, be at work uh, completely stoned out of their mind and have all these workplace accidents. And, you know, there's no way where we can um, accurately test for it now, like, you know, the current uh, piss testing and workplaces test for the, the um, cannabinoid that is soluble in your fat system that stays there for months and not the uh, psychoactive substance that is what people mm. smoke it for mainly. So what would you say to people who have concerns about those aspects of, of legalising cannabis? Isn't that ironic? And yet they're not concerned about the EOLC, so they're quite happy to kill people. Cannabis doesn't kill. But it does, it does have some health issues. And I came on board five years ago. I mean, I was a teenager. I, I imbibed. I mean, I will admit it, like Obama admitted it. Um, I'm not like him, but I will, I will admit I imbibed and I enjoyed it. But as I grew up and got older, and for the sake of my son, I never went near it after that. Then five years ago, I went on medicinal. It changed my life. It also changed my attitude. But I also write sentencing reports for a lot of prisoners and most of them are around meth, pee, cannabis, alcohol. Substance abuse should not be a criminal issue in a nutshell. It should be a health issue. Health and education. I've had one case where I had a guy that's in the Mason Clinic. He was. Uh, he murdered his family in a drug-induced psychosis, which was cannabis-related. He's one of the 0.01% people who cannot take THC simply because it's like an allergy. He reacts to it, and every time he does, he has a psycho psychotic break. And unfortunately, that does exist for some, but then it does for people with alcohol too. I come, I grew up, and and I had my birth family, my adoptive family were both alcoholic in background, and so I grew up around alcoholism. I watched a cousin bleed out and die as her liver 
uh, failed um, in her 30s. I've seen the effects of alcohol. My adoptive mum watching her and what happened with her in her life. Alcohol is a dangerous drug, and yet we're not wanting to stop that. You can't make something illegal and expect people not to imbibe. As a child, it was legal for me until um, about 50 years ago, so up until I was about eight. And so as a teenager, it was still around in society quite prolifically. And it's never, we're one of the highest users in the world. So let's manage it. Let's manage it with education. Let's manage it with health. Let's legalize and take all those funds away from corrections, 120,000 approximately a year, not for max, that's more, but for minimum to medium security, it's up to about that per person to keep them incarcerated when we could have them out for a lot less, provide therapy, provide education in the schools, provide health support. Doing that will give us better outcomes. Also for people that smoke it for medical reasons, they will learn that only 30%, I think 70% of it is wasted uh, in the smoking, whereas you get 100% of it if you try the medical of it. And so I'm on the THC CBD blend and that provides me with a lovely little feeling of euphoria without getting high. Um, but it takes away that edge of pain. It normalizes my feelings around pain, whereas opiates didn't. I'm off so many opiates. My ki liver, my kidneys were failing. And they were failing because of the opiates. And they were increasing the opiates. I was on morphine, tramadol, DHC continuum, gabapentin, uh, uh, codeine, and paracetamol on a hundred tablets a day can you imagine i was dribbling and drooling like some kind of you know neanderthal really and i was starting my academic journey uh at, at aut well that meant that i became clear of mind clear of body i've lost 28 odd kilos maybe more and my health is well i'm aging so i've got it doesn't cure my health is pro my condition's progressive but I've had a slower, like today I had my glaucoma testing because I had glaucoma and they were quite happy. The pressure's there, but it's keeping maintained. So, you know, what we need to be talking about is why do we want to make it illegal when it's really brown people that go to jail? I have had, I've known judges, lawyers, police that all use it. I had academics on the North Shore tell me, hey, Dal, I smoke it every night with all of them and it's all great, just use it, darling. And I'm looking at them going, yeah, I live in South Auckland, sweetheart. You know, <laughs> you know, a brown person doesn't get the same break as a person on the North Shore. So let's be clear about this. Our system is racist. And because of that, the incarcerations really started with America's propaganda around reefer madness. It was to keep black people, you know, they will rape your woman. They will, it was all misinformation, like the fake info that's getting out there today. They did it around cannabis. Marijuana is actually a racist term. It was designed to demean Mexicans. And so if we're going to change it, we need to get real about what the background is. Again, like the EOLC, people need to research and get proper information. Don't buy into this fear-mongering. Fear I'm not even buying into it around the EOLC. You know, it's about practical, common-sense approaches to these issues. If you don't want it, don't use it. But for goodness sake, don't go and stopping people don't ruin other people's lives. Do you know what? The majority of young people in prison are not because of the cannabis. It's because of alcohol, meth, and pee. Okay, cannabis is not a gateway drug either. In fact, they use it for drug addiction. 
to therapeutically get people off the cravings and what goes on and trying to get off. Like It's like my sugar addiction I had on all the opiates. You know, Sugar's worse than heroin to get off. Um, believe me, you throw a donut in my face and it's gone in half a second. Um, but sugar is hugely lethal as well. It causes diabetes. It kills us. Well, you know, it's the same with that. You have to educate and you have to provide a way of helping people. So what, what uh, cannabis does is it actually help, it deals with the addiction rates. It also works with anxiety. It's well known to work well with seizures, with epilepsy. And so why are we getting rid of something that is a plant, that is a medicine? And why can we not therefore learn about it, inform people, educate people? You imagine if we did civil education in schools and we also taught them about cannabis, about life, about voting, about literacy, around health and money. Can you imagine how more informed our young people would be to be able to get out there and be ready to become an adult? Far better than I was. I was raised by nuns. You know, believe me, the nuns didn't teach me anything. I didn't even know what a lesbian was because I'd never heard about them, and yet I am one. You know, I thought Leslie's, the name Leslie meant lesbian. That's how naive I was because nuns kept you uninformed. Don't be like a nun. Don't be uninformed. Inform yourself. Educate. Learn and find out. And honestly, you don't need to go to YouTube for that information. And you don't need to go to Billy Tikahika's um, page for that misinformation either. Get it from the real sources. Get it from the horse's mouth and you'll find the truth. I'm really happy with where that's up to. Simon, do you have any follow-up? Yeah, I just want to go back and touch on your comment about uh, cannabis not being a gateway drug. It's the drug dealers that are the gateway drug. Yes. It's the fact that you've got to go to some dude who's or may have a, a, a few uh, grams of MDMA or meth or you know something yep. else as well as the guy that sells you your tinny bag, you know, your tinny or your 50 bag of weed. It's not the, it's not the drug and it's these campaigns of abstinence only. We, you know, we've just got to look to the, the historically mm. high rates of uh, Christian and religious uh, births and families to know that abstinence doesn't work. It doesn't, no. work, with alcohol, <laughs> it doesn't work with any other drug. You can't just say, don't do it because people go, hmm, I think I'll try it just this once, mm. realize that their world doesn't fall apart and they don't die and they go, well, what the fuck else have I been lied to my whole life about? Well, so we've know, got that, a education. That's a good point because I actually was raised around pubs because my aunts and uncles all own pubs, right? At the age of 12, on Sundays they used to close and so on Sundays all the family would gather outside for a barbie in the summer. All us kids were in the pub making drinks. I was learning how to make death charges B-52s and uh, how to make black Russians, white Russians at the age of 12. And I, I could drink like a fish at that age. Of course, I was a bad drunk. I was never any good. I mean, I'd start fights with gang members. And I was so tiny at that time. I was tiny once. They would just lift me up on the table and go, yeah, yeah, all right, doll. You know, it was just, I mean, I was a mess under alcohol, but I was never a mess with cannabis. And the difference there is that um, it, it calms you down. It doesn't rack you up whereas alcohol tends to rack you up. So let's remember that. But also, I don't think you'll get a speeding ticket if you have cannabis and drive. You're more likely to be going at 10 k's than you are at 50 k's or 80 k's. And, um, <laughs> you know, the accident rate's slightly lower. But knowing that it's a risk around driving, then you need to learn responsibility. And you don't learn that if you don't teach people that. And you can't do that if you don't have education around it. So because we don't, we tend to have this, put our blinders on and let's not look. And if we don't see, we can't tell that anything's going wrong. You know, we lowered alcohol to the age of 18 for our young people and it's been a disaster. 
Um, but we haven't done it for it. And, you know, um, up north, one of the biggest problems is pee. And the kids get, they get the dope and the gangs, they know that. And then they go, I want something. And they go, look, I've got something better for you, mate. You know, I'll give you a free try. And then they try it. And then they get them to become the dealers to their friends. And they can do it as low as 15 bucks a bag. And so, you know, if you've got, um, if you want to talk about where the real problem is, it's having illegal drugs. Now, I think it's in uh, Guatemala or is it in Paraguay? One of those countries where Port- they've actually... Portugal. Portugal. There you go. I knew it was close. Um, but what they've done is legalised all drugs. And what they've actually found mm. is that there's been a reduction in drug use. Because with it comes education. Making something illegal, at the age of 12, I was accessing alcohol, right? At the age of 21, when it was legal for me then, I stopped. I haven't had a drink in over 34 years. I actually stopped drinking. I knew it wasn't working, but I only used it because it was illegal. And the same with dope, you know, um, it was illegal. So you would try it. Kids try, we experiment. I'm ADHD, of course I'm gonna bloody try it. And you know, what we've got to do is be honest. Be honest with ourselves and be honest with each other. I taught my son about drugs. I taught him, I taught him about sex. I taught, him, I taught him about, you know, all of these issues. If you don't talk to your kids, then that's part of your problem. If you're not going to talk to teenagers who are risk takers, then that's part of the problem. Be real about it. Be honest, you know. Um, and honestly, if you're going to say yes to the EOLC and no to cannabis, you're a hypocrite. Okay? Mm, because how yep. can you be pushing for a dignity and death and not be pushing for people who want to utilise cannabis to control pain, spasms, epilepsy, the whole lot. You're a hypocrite. It's that simple. And I'm sorry that sounds harsh, but you are. You either, you know, you, you've got to look at it in the context of what it needs to be in. This has been amazing. But just before we, we move on, one, one question I've had uh, to me, and this doesn't necessarily represent my view, but I've had a question given to me around um, if everybody's stoned who's going to be productive <laughs> well you know again that's around education if you want a job <laughs> and a career and you've got dreams for it not everyone you know I've already said to you that judges lawyers police yeah, use it yeah. okay not everyone that's a stoner sits there going yo jam on you know yo reggae come <laughs> on I'm all for it brother you know, not everyone's in that kind of frame, okay? Some people use it a little bit, like like drinking. You've got social drinkers, you've got alcoholics. You either start your booze. Like I have a, a whānau member who, who drinks like a fish at 9 o'clock in the morning starts, and when they come and visit, um, our recycle bin is full after four days of wine bottles, and we have to put them in bags until we can empty them again. And that's how bad it is. Now, you, you're either going to imbibe 24-7. I don't know how anybody could, to be honest, because I like to be productive. If people have got a problem, again, a health lens and an educational lens, provide them with the support, the therapy, and the rehab that's needed. Um, you know, and you can, because see, I mean, also remember the plant has over 52 uh, different elements in it that are healing. So you've got, um, you know, cannabinoids is only one. But also cannabinoidals live in our system naturally. We have cannabinoidals in our system. As I understand it, and I'm not an expert on this, the, cannab- the CBD in the smoke is also some, it attaches to the CBD in your body. And that's how it becomes a healing element. So people that can't access THC, for instance, can get 100% CBD 
and actually that becomes a healing daily. It's like taking hemp oil. It's like taking uh, black molasses that I had to, uh, castor oil or whatever that my mother made me take as a kid. It's like a therapeutic remedy every day. And so, and there's, all, there's, you know, there's multiple elements that need research that could be quite healing in many other ways. So if we looked at it, THC is really good for nausea, going through chemotherapy. It's also RSO, Rick Simpson's oil, is, is, a, is a specific oil um, that's really good when people are dying, okay? It's a really good way of reducing uh, the aspect of the pain, uh, pain and all the other issues that go with it. So, you know, open your mind again, read and learn and understand because I'm really only talking about the stuff I've understood and learned in the last five years. And believe me, it's changed my mind because I was quite conservative by the time I got onto the oil stuff. But I was curious because I remembered having good nights when I was a teenager. <laughs> You know, and I thought, hmm, and it doesn't give me what that used to give me. I really did get high. But what this does is it just basically takes the edge off pain. And so you don't get high, but you do get your forehead. That's amazing. Thanks, Who? There's some things I want to just, to touch on. You know, that relationship that cannabis has to people being lazy. I think it's inverse. You know, people think cannabis makes you lazy. It's not. It's just lazy people <laughs> like cannabis. There's, you know if the cannabis didn't exist lazy people would find something else to consume all day like that's i think where the attachment comes to and and the relationship is that lazy people who aren't that motivated who aren't that um you know driven they'll just find something to placate yeah. that 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 voice inside their head that tells them they're not doing much cannabis does that and it's relatively low harm in terms of physically yeah. on your body but it allows you to stop that voice going hey mate you're just sitting there doing nothing just and it allows you to kind of relax into it. And then the other thing, which you're talking about with CBD and, and the cannabinoids and the cannabinoid system, receptors in our body, there's the a leading theory that the cannabinoid receptors in your breast tissue before your mamas is that when your baby is latching on to, to, to have milk, is that the cannabinoids help the, the baby think, this is good for me, I like this, I'm going to continue to feed. So it's you know there's these things that that are naturally occurring in our body that just prove that this plant should be a part of our diet, whether it's through eating, whether it's through smoking, whether it's yes. oils, whatever it is. There's ways that we need to ingest it to make our bodies function properly. Multiple ways. I remember my cousin. He actually made one of those cakes, and my mother and my auntie had a really lovely night that night. It was his 21st, I think it was, and I found out afterwards. And I'm wondering why they were laughing so much. It certainly wasn't the alcohol that night, but uh, it was one of those rare moments where they really did have a good night. So, you know, hey, you know, don't be so afraid of it. But the other interesting thing in the last five years in that in this journey, I've had an awful lot of Komatua Kuya actually asking me for help to access it. Some of them are very high profile as well. And so I won't divulge more than that. But it's interesting how they were terrified, couldn't even ask their own families, where some of their own children and grandchildren were actually, I knew for a fact that they were in there using it, but they wouldn't ask them. They asked me because they wanted a safe version. That's the other thing too. You don't want to buy off dealers because you don't know what you're getting. I would far rather have Manu Caddy and what used to be Hikorangi Hemp, I think it's got a new name now, and um, what they are developing, which they're going to get the first license, I think, in New Zealand, they have it. Um, and, you know, we need to be just a little bit more honest about how it works and how it, you know, we need to be talking to people. And, and we also, the thing is, if you legalise recreational, because what's the relationship to medicinal? Well, what it does is it opens the door to get free or cheaper. 
And that's really important as well. We need to be able to make, because this, when I started on the journey, Sativex cost me 1500 a month. Um, it took away all my savings. I don't have anything now as a result. That's okay, because I made that decision. But it's not fair on my wife and, and on my whānau, because I took it away from them, our secured future. But I had to, because it was either me live well or me live in pain. And so then it went down to about a thousand, then eight hundred, and now it's four hundred and thirty-five a month because I'm on the CBD THC ten ten. The full CBD is about two hundred and eighty for a month, so it's a bit less. But it needs to be a lot cheaper because when you're on SLP or whatever, it's expensive. So we need to um, educate doctors as well, in the same way we need to educate them around euthanasia, we need to educate them around cannabis. Uh, some are for, some are against. My pain specialist is so incredible because he's for it he understands it and it's made a huge difference to a lot of people i know so open your mind and with that your your views are so clear and this has been a mind-blowing conversation (laughs) i i feel guilty for even trying to pivot uh to the next question who but the question we did want to ask is bearing in mind everything you've you've told us and you've helped us learn about what do you think are the most important issues facing Māori today uh, bearing in mind that we are in election mode right now what would you say uh, to the people at home about that racism is one but health racism in our health system our disability system disabled Māori are the most underrepresented under-resourced and under-supported in the country, behind Pacific peoples, who've got their own DPO, by the way. Um, and Pati is wonderful because he's done that. But Māori, um, there's only Ngāti Kapo in there, and they are bullying all the other Māori groups out. So um, what we actually need is to have a Māori DPO. And as a treaty partner, we shouldn't have to be begging for that. That should be automatic. But the health system is so starting So real fast, people. before you move on, you don't <laughs> consider Kapamadi to be a representative voice? No. No, they're blind, and they represent the blind, and they've admitted that. They don't represent other disabilities. Okay? So they're not a pan-disability, pan-tribal group. They're simply a blind group um, that represent blind Māori. But they try to represent more, but they don't actually embrace the rest of us. So they have their own voice, and they have their own representation good on them but they've blocked a lot of us from our own representation. And I'll say it for what it is. That's amazing. So so what what, what would the other issues be? You talked about racism. Yeah. Mm. What, what about racism? Where, where do you, you talked about the health system, but is there anywhere else you, you'd consider to be racist it's, in New Zealand society? It's everywhere. I live in South Auckland. Okay. You can't escape racism. West Auckland, South Auckland, get good examples of it. I mean, Polynesian peoples, the minute... I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a glow in the dark Maori. Okay, so I I get away with glowing. I mean, if there was a power cut, I just need to take off my clothes and I can guide you out. I'll glow you out. But well, um, glow you know, in the dark Maori. I think Simon yeah. joined you with that with that actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you know, we come in all I'm shapes like the, the North Star Maori. <laughs> You're not a Kaitahu boy, are you? You're no, North not. Island, South Island. I'm North Island. I'm far, I'm a far north. Teo Pauri from the far north. Oh my north. gosh, you're like yeah. Claire. She's a Ngāpuhi girl and a little redhead too. I tell you, my <laughs> son's got a bit of ginger in his beard. I said to him, no, there's no gingers in my family. I said, yeah. I'm sorry, son, but we might have to 
disown you, but uh, no, <laughs> love the gingers. Um, but you see, the perfect example is we come in all shapes and sizes. We come with all sorts of thoughts and feelings, but the problem we've got is that the browner you are, the more likely you are going to be arrested and stopped and judged. And I've seen that in my sentencing report writing with our young Māori that are in prison, and many of them have undiagnosed disabilities. And it's really painful to hear their journeys where the abuse they've sustained was from birth. We used to treat our children, our babies, with such beautiful love and respect. Uh, Colonisation, the Bible, whatever it is, has changed that. And our, like one of the things that Cook's doctor noted um, strongly was our warrior, our Māori men, they were, they were beautiful. In fact, they noted that Polynesian people were generally a very beautiful race of people. We had beautiful physiques. We were strong. We were healthy. And then um, he noted, too, in, the, in his documents, how Māori, the men who were these fierce, frightening warriors with these full-face muko or whatever, um, scary-looking, were also at the same time deemed to be um, uh, gentle to their women and their children. And they were seen as, as they couldn't get over this dichotomy of these very angry, violent um, men uh, in war, but then gentle and loving when it came to being um, part of, um, with their whanau. And That's so amazing. what we, yep. yeah, and so, you know, the, that that is who we are. We are complex people, the same as everyone else, but, our systems are broken down. I worked it out when I was briefly on the Kainga Order Board or Housing New Zealand, the old one. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I was pushing co-housing. The reason I was pushing it is that in South Auckland, there was an opportunity to develop multi-generational housing because that was where they hadn't yet built. And the reason I was pushing it is one of the biggest things that's broken down for Polynesian people and for migrants, refugees and others that work as a whānau more than individualised living is that they had lost their connections to each other because they're living apart. Mm -hmm. And the best support, and you know, we talked earlier about support frameworks. One of the best supports you can provide is to have nana, koro, kuya, auntie and uncle, the kids, disabled, living under the same structure as the abled whānau members, where you're looking after each other. Where if nanny needs help, someone's always gonna be there. If the children need babysitting, the parents can go out and both work for a bloody living. You know, instead of sitting at home, you, there's no excuse for it because they'll be the kids will be cared for by the aunties, the uncles, the nannies, the kōros. And if we had this multi-generational concept in New Zealand, and I see it here in Papatoitoi because what we have, it's Indian country, and uh, they have a lot of large houses. They successfully do the multi-generational living really well. They've nailed it. Why are we not learning of that community and benefiting from it? Can you imagine if instead of paying separate rents, highly priced rents throughout a bunch of houses, if we all pulled together and had that one structure that we had our own place, but we had shared dwellings there. You know, you could do it as a multi-level apartment where each has got their own, but then you've got the shared space and you can develop your own kai garden and all that. Can you imagine how much we would save in health dollars, how much we would save in babysitting, caregiving, how much we would save in trauma and abuse, and how much we would save in the state on so many areas. Can you imagine the money that the family would bring in with one rent that everyone shares? Can you imagine if someone's um, tending to the garden, 
They then get fresh vegetables and fruit. And the children are being engaged with day in, day out. It reduces so many risks. Why are we not doing this? They even acknowledged before they kicked me off the board that that was actually a bloody good idea. And I don't know if they're exploring it, but it's damn important that we try and look at different way of living as I, much as we I can. have to ask, are you aware of the Auckland Council? I mean, are they looking at this concept as part of unitary development and all? Or? No. No. I was the first chairperson <clears throat> of the first disability advisory group. And then... I'm aware. <laughs> and, um, and it was fine until they brought this this father of a disabled child on who had ulterior motives and actually wanted to develop housing. And he was quite in favour of um, having whole suburbs without accessible housing in them, new developments. And if you go out to Botany, those new houses are not accessible, okay? You have got whole neighbourhoods that have not prepared with Lifemark standard housing, universal housing models, where they could be easily and cheaply developed, adapted to include, you know, if you develop your disabilities and you don't want to move. So what they've successfully done in Auckland is they've actually excluded disabled from a lot of new areas of new development. And that's a problem in itself. I mean, the whole of Hobsonville has not got accessible housing. It doesn't have state housing. So when we're talking about elitism, we're talking about this whole structural racism what you're talking about certain suburbs where under national they were actually kicking disabled and poor people further south so all their cleaners their laborers were getting moved out as far as papakura and then having to catch a train at five o'clock in the morning to get to work or go and leave at three o'clock to get in or get stuck in traffic for two hours having to spend you know hundreds of dollars a week in petrol and paying the mountains of rent because they had pushed them so far south that we were no longer part of the community. They have been gentrifying. They did it with Ponsonby. They're trying to do it with Mangari. They're doing it with Otara, um, with Botany, Glen Innes, you know, uh, East Tamaki. These areas all got developed to points that they were kicking out uh, poor people, brown people, and putting in people who had money. That's the reality. And so, no, Auckland Council is not doing its job. But then I don't blame the councillors because the super city that came in took their decision-making away and took their power away and created CCOs, council-controlled organisations, where they've got no power. And so the problem you've got is CCOs are actually making their own decisions and often against the councillors' decisions. So we've actually got tensions and we shouldn't have a super city. I love your view on the holistic lifestyle and call this an awkward segue, but... I, w I want to talk about system transformation now. I, I, I suppose one of the things that I consider is that it, it's no good having choice and control over your resource if you have nowhere to live. Yeah, exactly. And, and I actually <laughs> raised this. I remember when the election where Paula Bennett was the housing minister and I went to the thing and, you know, she was talking about, you know, they, they started the annual reviews, right? And I said, to, and I asked the question, why are you including disabled in the annual reviews? And why are you not allowing employed disabled to get access to the only accessible housing Thank you. often? Thank you. Which is state housing. Yeah. And why is Thank it you. that they cannot be included? Yep. And because I had it before I was working, but when I did work, I managed to transfer. But now you can't even do that. My house is no longer really fit for our purpose. Mm. I need a more accessible home and I can't get it because there's nothing there. But my working peers who are disabled 
cannot get access to an assessment. Yep. And he turned around and said, well, you know, they need to apply like everybody else. And I'm looking at it going, you privileged little geek. And, um, you know, and I lost respect for a lot of the politicians now because they sit there in their elitism, in their high pay, in their ivory towers, dictating to all of us citizens without the actual experience. And many of them haven't even lived long enough to have an experience in life. But for a lot of them, they don't know what they're doing. But these are the ones making the life and death decisions on our lives. And housing is hugely critical. And if we don't get housing as a human right, under the UNCRPD, we could actually take a case against them. Um, and I would encourage anyone that wants to. Um, but housing is hugely critical. And I don't know why I pushed and pushed for them to prioritise disabled in housing. But when I left, that was the promise they gave me, but I haven't seen any development. And to be honest, the last two meetings that housing had with the disability community just disappointed me far too much that I refused to engage with it anymore. Me as well. Me as yeah. well, actually. I turned around and told them. I said, I'm not engaging with you until you're prepared to do the next stage. Because you already know what our thoughts are. You know what our needs are. You've been told, told and told. Stop talking to us and actually get on and do the damn job. So in 2018, the Ministry of Health and others launched what they are calling system transformation, uh, starting with a prototype branded as Manafaikaha. I'm really interested to get your views on the journey that has been EGL and your perspective on it. You know I'm critical of EGL. I'm critical for two reasons. One, that it's not rolled out nationally yet and it's taken far too long for a trial. It either gets rolled out nationally or just scrap it. Uh, two, um, I have a real issue with the terminology in Māori because they didn't consult with disabled Māori. Um, and I will not adopt a term that indicates that my nephews and nieces that are all autistic somehow live in space. They don't. The Māori worldview of that is very different. And that does not encapsulate that worldview. I'm not a linguist, but I've spoken to linguists who have children who are autistic, where their language is first language is Māori, is te reo. And they've all said to me they actually hate the terms because they don't understand any context behind them. So there hasn't really been any engagement with Māori disabled about those terms. It's been Pākehā. And you know what really grates on my nerve is the Pākehā that use it knowing I hate it, and then they use it in my face. It's like they insult me to my face. So I will just put that to one side because I've had to try and take my anger about the whole lack of consultation and put that away and look at EGL. System transformation. It won't do anything as long as you keep pouring money into it without looking at a sustainable form of funding. Now, Warren Forster has designed a program for ACC to transform it, but not only that, He's also, um, he's actually taken it to Cabinet. I think he's waiting for them to sign it off. But he has a form of an idea, and, an, and I can't say too much till it comes out publicly, but the concept is that it sits directly within the treaty. So Māori disabled are right at the centre of it, but it's also designed to sustainably fund disability. And it does it, and the economic model is proven under the GTP, the gross uh, domestic product, um, that it would take no more than, I think, 1%, 2% of the GDP to fully fund disability supports and services and do it, giving us dignity. 
Now, why the heck are they slow on that? Well, they had a three-party coalition. The three-party coalition meant that one party didn't want any of these trans system transformations. One party wanted some of them, and one party wanted all of them. And so uh, the one party that didn't want it, and I won't name them because people are voting and it's not fair, but the one party that wanted none of it are very proud about the fact that they blocked the Welfare Expert Advisory Report recommendations and stopped them being implemented. Very proud about the debacle that's known as the Health Review Group reform program. Um, and very proud about the fact that they managed to block most progressive changes. So honestly, what we need is the party that wants all of it in and the party that wants part of it in so that we can get that consensus and going ahead. And really, people have to make their own decision about how they're going to vote. But the Health and Disability Review Group is quite telling in how they don't understand us. Not one disabled expert with direct experience was placed on that committee. When I questioned Heather Simpson at the very beginning of that, she laughed at me and walked off. And then it was proven that they failed both Māori, Pacifica and disabled when they released it and the Māori Health Review Group said we weren't even included. So they weren't included, but also disabled weren't even mentioned until page 150. Yep, and there's nothing there. The, the Ministry of Health has been proven through the lockdowns that they are incompetent. They are not fit to practice around disabled. They are dangerous to us. And we should be angry, quite honestly. They denied, I had had my SBC catheter fitted in March. I was still needing the district nurses. They came in twice and I still needed them. And they turned around and said to me, we can't come back because we are not being given PPE gear and we're not allowed to come back. And so I ended up with infections that I'm still fighting now because they didn't do their job. And you know what? They've caused more pain and discomfort for me because they didn't do what they should have done in the beginning. And I'm not the only one. I know so many disabled that have struggled with delayed procedures, with delayed treatments. And, you know, they might be catching They might not think much of this. But in all honesty, this is why disabled want to die out of desperation. Okay? And I can absolutely understand it personally. Because I can tell you now that there wasn't a day that I didn't cry out of pain. And so what we need is, if we want system transformation, we need to be bringing disabled into that conversation around health and disability. And we need to get brave. And they're too scared to get brave. And that's what worries me a little bit. Man, I just really want to acknowledge those powerful words. Uh, who? It's, it's really hard to want to ask you another <laughs> question. Where, Go yeah, for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just gassed me out because I, I felt... <laughs> I felt what you said. I, I felt the dismay and I feel the weight of the disability community hanging off the system transformation. Well, you know, the, the hard part here is that we got COVID this year, which stopped everything, really. Mm -hmm. But I have a friend in the UK that got COVID twice. Uh, he ended up in ICU twice. He now has a heart condition and lung issues, maybe permanent. We don't know yet. I have two disabled friends that were killed in America because they had well, respirators and their providers said, we need to take your spare respirator away because we need it for COVID. They said, but you will kill us um, because they were worried about, um, you know, like if their machine stops, they don't have their spare handy. Well, they both died. Okay. Um, we have my, my daughter-in-law's father died of COVID two weeks ago. We've lost four whanau this year. Um, and 
one was where the hospital again, like that O. Williams case, the Robert Namu case, became significantly disabled and essentially they refused a DNR and killed her. And, you know, the thing that really hurts is that nobody was there to protect them. The whānau tried, honestly. We, we have a, a cousin who's a registered nurse who goes and, and supports whānau through to the end of their life. And it's beautiful and she does a great job. But you needed a lawyer there. You needed someone who could advocate for that person's rights because guess what the doctors and nurses were doing? Behind the whānau back, as soon as they went out for a break or to the loo, they'd go in and wah-wah into her ear. A week later, she went from I want to live to I want to die. And dead now. You know, it's so blasé, but that's how it ended up. I want to come back to something you said about the use of the term whaikaha. So, so you 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 disagree with the work that Kitty Opai did around reframing words and disability for Māori? Not necessarily. I I I object to the lack of consultation with disabled Māori. That's what I object to. Okay. The other thing, I spoke with Moy Milne, who was part of the team that developed those terms, and she acknowledged that she had no idea that they weren't consult that we weren't consulted. Um, and she was very angry after that because she said they told me that they had consulted with the very people who it impacts, but they hadn't. I think, as I understand it, he went back to his Taranaki Fano and talked to them. Now, I don't think that's good enough. You consult with the people that it impacts on. Um, I don't have an issue with the words if I can understand the context of it, the history behind it. It's very different. That's why I won't use it, because I know what Whanahaua is, because um, the late Donny Rangiaho came and presented that term. He talked about the history of it. He talked about the meaning of it and why it's so important, because despite Hoa under the old dictionary calling it the crippled, diseased, decrepit, decayed, the modern terminology is different because we now understand that disability is not all that. We've changed our language. But it's more important than that. Hoa never even meant that. We never had a term for disability. Whānau is important because who am I? I'm not an individual. I am, but I'm not. I am a Fano member, first and foremost. I love that. I love the fact that it immediately places me as a central member of my whānau. Hoa is talking about the environment within which we are raised. Okay, so I understand that. Ha! You know, the breath, the breath of life is what that is. And so for me, I am a product of the environment within which I was born and within which I was raised. My disabilities happen to be an effect of that environment. Exposure to dioxin as a young child, as a baby, as an infant. That's Agent Orange 245T, which was produced in Tabamaki at the time. Oh, man. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and we can't even get justice for that because the government blocked it and stopped us being able to do a class action. So all of us affected don't have anything for that. So we have an accident related from chemicals, but we are stuck under the medical system because we're not allowed to apply for the ACC system. So, you know, it's it's this is where the disparities and inequities exist. Manafaikaha is is fine if if we are consulted and then we give them the mandate to use the terms. But by just consulting with a couple of people and then pulling it out there as a nationwide terminology, I don't accept that. And my treaty claim has actually directly challenged that. 
and it'll be heard early next year. So what I have actually put in there is that I want the right and the autonomy to term, to design my own terminologies as I just choose. Why do I have to come under that term? I am whana hawa and I am huhana first and foremost. I am not my disability. And the Māori or the Polynesian concepts of disability, we live in the global south, which means we live in the southern hemisphere. Why are we adopting terms from the global north? Why are we adapting the terms that came with violence through colonisation, the systems, the entities? Why do we not have our Polynesian knowledge? We're Polynesian people. No matter what your ethnicity is, you live in New Zealand, for goodness sake. This is Polynesia. Therefore, adapt it in a Polynesian way. We don't have the same experiences as Europe. So why are we embracing their thinking? We could do our own. And honestly, it was far more inclusive, loving, and embracing than what their system is. Amazing. Absolutely. Pokoko. I mean, the, you can just see it. Even in Asian communities, I saw it through mm. lockdown. Who was taking the mokopona around the block during the day while women were at work? It was Koro and Kuia. It, they yeah. have that multi-generational, fully Fano, you know, model, and it is that nuclear family Pakiha way of urbanized life where it's mum and dad and the kids, and that's it. And you just pay your way through everything you can't do yourself. And so like, you imagine if you had that with them living it with you, co-housing model. How beautiful is that? You wouldn't be left like some of the cases I came across during lockdown. One was an elderly woman in a wheelchair. She didn't ask anyone for help, and she'd run out of food. And for two weeks, she was living on, on instant noodles and rice and couldn't get access to, couldn't get onto the websites to get food, didn't know how. She's an elderly senior lady in a wheelchair. And it wasn't until the niece found out, had rung her to just do a wellness check and found out she was horrified, contacted me because she knew me and said, look, I need help. I don't know how to help her. It's my auntie. She's been starving for two weeks because she had nothing. Nobody looked at it. They just stopped her cares and left her to founder for, you know, six to eight weeks. So with the Tainui um, team, because beautiful, that my iwi stepped up for our people and I managed to get a bunch of boxes and I got it out to different disabled around um, Auckland. And it was simply because I said to them, don't just do South Auckland, Kari. We've got Tainui all over. I didn't care if they were or not. I just said, look, I need to help them. So I got a bunch of boxes and got them out there. And, um, well, we, they didn't mind because what they were saying, it was about getting food into the people of need. They, you know, the funny thing about Māori and Marae, everyone bags us and attacks us, but whenever the homelessness got to the point, Tapuya stepped up and housed people. Manarewa stepped up. You know, Manarewa was actually the driver behind these food boxes to go out to the different parts of the community. So anyone that said they, they needed a box, I would just make sure they got one. And so I spent a lot of my lockdown doing a lot of voluntary advocacy for families that rang me out of emergencies to the point that I would ring um, Minister Salisa and say, Oi, Jenny, I need to talk. So then we'd talk for an hour and a half. And then I'd had the director, the deputy director of Ministry of Health, who I've known for over 30 years, uh, got her on, had an argument with them. They came back and said, oh, this is the other side. I said, no, 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 no. Don't give me that. Don't tell me that what your employees said to you, because I said, I don't believe them. I know for a fact that there was an unwell nurse tending to this disabled person who's autoimmune and they refused to glove up and wear masks. I said, you don't put my community at risk, thank you. So, you know, they got told off and they behaved as a result because they knew that I would have gone public. And that's the thing. They, they, they are a little frightened of me because I'll just take it publicly because I'm not afraid of them. 
And a lot of our people have to stop being afraid of politicians. They're nothing more than human. They're nothing more than you and me. And therefore, you employ them. When you vote for them, you employ them. So use them. Simon, I'm mindful of asked all of my questions, so I'll hand over to you to ask any follow-ups. I'm, I'm really keen to to lean on your knowledge of the of Māori tikanga, and I love the the your point about that we're in Polynesia. So I would ask, what do you think would be some of the biggest ways we could improve? Aotearoa by adopting Polynesian tikanga, whether it be Māori or Pacifica, Samoa, Tonga, wherever it might be, what's something that you think we could do to replace a Pākehā way of doing things to improve uh, our lives? Yeah, I mean, Western ideology is one thing. Western living, all of that, that's fine. But why should it be the dominant decider in the decisions we make in life? You know, my Pacifica cousins are just that. They're my cousins. You know, and, and most Māori will tell you that we are all um, Polynesian. So we've got, you know, you've got different iwi hapu that also have links into Tonga, Samoa, Nui'e, Cook Islands, you know, um, Aitutaki, you know, they, they come from all over. Um, and so we, you know, I have nieces and nephews, Mukupuna, who are Māori Samoan, Māori Tongan, you know, Māori Indian, Māori whatever. And... Um, we come in all shapes, and, and as we as we are global, we evolve, and we are evolving. Tikanga is an evolving concept; it doesn't stay stagnant. I'm not a tikanga expert. Um, I am. I have my views. I was adopted, so I didn't grow up under a Maori lens, and I had to learn, which is a bit different to living it. And so, I would never explain express myself as an expert. I have my views, and others have theirs. Um, Oh, I think we've lost to Hana again. Oh, oh no. Uh, Just as she's about to unload. I, I will... Who I am. Uh, she's back again. Okay, good. Yeah. Please finish Hi, that just... thought because it was a great one, Who? Yes. Okay, so tikanga is evolving. So imagine at the time when they adapted Christian prayers into into karakia, into tikanga, right? And, that was, and they, they adapted their tikanga to adapt to a modern world. And we're moving, we've got a new century. We have a new generation. People are have varying um, experiences. And so the next generation will adapt and adapt and adapt. And what we have to do is be able to adapt with it while not losing the essence of who we are. So one of the things that I did to practically teach my health students when I was teaching them is if I could, I would take them outside and make them form a little circle because I had small groups around a tree, take off their shoes. And if it was a beautiful day, you could feel the breeze and the sun, close their eyes, put their hand on the trees and feel under their feet. And I, I would talk to them things like visualize for them. So I'd say to them, remember Papa Tuanuku, Mother Earth, she's breathing. Feel her breathing. Feel the grass blades as they breathe. Feel the ants underneath. Everything, the worms, everything underneath your feet is all part of her breathing. She's alive, okay? The tree you're touching, feel its life, the bark, everything else. There'll be an ant all over you. There's sentience. There's life there. Feel the sun on your face. Feel the breeze on your skin with your eyes closed. That is 
that is the wairua of our world, the spiritual world that we live in. There's nothing more than that. I can't, I'm not a Christian. I can't explain religion. I don't like religion. I don't understand it. But I do understand wairua and in my understanding of it around the indigenous-based ideologies. And what I found is Buddhism teachings is one of the closest representations of what we had traditionally. But for me, it gives a calming and a peace. And I said to them, when you're spending so much time dealing with the lives of other human beings, you need to take time for yourself. And this is one way you can do it. And a lot of them, I've seen them two years later, and they might be nursing me or whatever, and they go, you know, I never forgot that picture. And this is what we need to be teaching each other. You know, there's, there's more to life than what's in this life. I don't know the other life, but I do know that there's an energy. Or I know astro astrologically that, or astronomy-wise that there's that energy pulls, like with the moon, there's a waning and a pulling in, that the tides are affected by the moon, that the universe is, affects Earth in, in its way that it does. And, you know, tides, um, the way the seasons are affected, and that if we keep tuning out, as we do in this modern world, we lose touch. And so what's happening is what you're seeing in America right now. What's happening is what you're seeing environmentally and globally. So if we could touch base again, we would know that to have a balance in life, a good life, is to have priorities around human well-being, environmental well-being, animal well-being. Everything within that has an essence, has a modi, has a wairua. And if we acknowledge that, so every time we eat, acknowledge the beast that was killed to feed you. You know, I, I thank the fish in front of me, or I thank, I don't eat much meat anymore, because the more I've gone into that journey, the less I like the idea of killing a sentient creature. Um, but that's my personal journey, and that's for other people to find out their own way. We also need protein, so we have to find ways to do that. But, you know, I absolutely love that journey I'm on, because I'm now more aware of everything around me. And if we're not aware of everything around us, we get stuck in our own world. And our tiny little worldview is not enough to be able to make concerted opinions on. We need to understand other world lenses, to be able to understand ourselves and to be able to understand each other. Kilda. <laughs> and that's why I like the brown girl, Aradna. <laughs> you know, I'm a white brown girl, but I'm a brown girl in the ring. And I mm. love it. Yeah, I have basically taken a really big... Um, uh, taking to understanding the essence of the universe, the reality. And a lot of what the science is telling us now just basically puts a really boring way of understanding how Māori, how indigenous cultures understand the universe, that breathing, that life force, that energy. Mm. Yes, they've scientifically proven that there technically are no boundaries between anything in the world. You know, it's all meeting up against each other there is no gaps there's no, no voids there's just a continual connectedness and it's we, it's wonderful can you imagine if indigenous irish took charge of their environment indigenous welsh indigenous scots I'm not sure if the english could actually take control because they're too dive well were they, they weren't really indigenous were they no they weren't because i was just going to say that you know you'd be surprised how many uh, Brits that think that they're true Brits, true blues, um, actually have African ancestry <laughs> or Middle Eastern ancestry, and they get quite a shock when they get their DNA and tests and find that out. So, you know, they're quite mixed, really. But 
can you imagine like the Sami people, my other ancestors, my father's people, are reindeer people. They use every piece of the reindeer as their lifeblood, as their life essence. They know their environment so well. Can you imagine if they could guide their regions, Scandinavian regions, around around their environment? Imagine the Native Americans. My Navajo grandfather comes from those people. And they, you know, they are being genocided at the moment because their governor won't allow them to lock down. And they're dying in higher numbers than any other group over there. Imagine my Aboriginal great-grandfather and his mob in Northern Territory. They know my sisters and brother, my sister and brothers have, have all been initiated. My sister goes, you know, they go, they go women's circle or men's circle. And they, they, I mean, my father would say, you know, they don't need money, not the traditional black fella. What they actually do is if they need money, they just go out in the bush or in the, in the desert and they find a lump of gold. They know exactly where to look for it and they take it back and get what they want. They don't really, traditionally, they don't have a concept of money. What they want is a product. So the shop owner will sell them the product and they just give them the gold that they've just found on the side somewhere. Whereas we need modern detectors, they don't. They can just, they, they are trackers like no other. Imagine if Māori, if Taranaki Māori led the way around their area. Our people are kaitiaki of our foreshore and seabed on that west coast. You know, we don't give our seafood away to just anybody. Um, you know, imagine if we were the kaitiaki of the whitebait, my favourite seafood. But I can't, I don't have it now because simply because it's not available and you shouldn't be taking uh, depleted sources. So instead of the people going, oh, my right, my body, my tooth, I'm going to go white baiting till there's none left, you know, we'll be starving as people. We're killing our ocean. We're poisoning our waters. We're selling our waters and we're not making much of it. So we're not we even need selling it. No, we're giving it away. And so with all of those issues, you can see why people get really tired of it all. So... All you can do, you could argue, you could fight, you could get angry. But what we really need to be doing is work on our own journeys and that will emanate out to other people. And the more that do it, the more it changes the world. Yeah. That's that, system transformation, brother. That's right. And I think <laughs> it's, something, it's something that is really understated and I've only kind of been recently made aware of it, is that if you make your identity around the opposition of something, you mm. will... that opposition will always exist so for you to truly win the argument if that's mm -hmm. what you're after is to disengage and to work towards building the reality that you want don't focus on opposing what exists that you do not like take your energy and your time and to put it towards yes. what you want to happen and, and I, that's that, what i'm trying so to much do. sense yeah mm. i mean basically my darling wife gets neglected all the time because i prioritize the community and I really should, I do have to, you know, recognise that. And, you know, doing the election rounds lately, it's, it's exhausting. And it's, it's, it, it takes a piece of your soul. And um, I, I know that I need to take some time for us. So I'm looking at that. But at the same time, she's beautiful because she recognises that if the community needs me, she allows me to do that. And that's the beauty of a relationship that's done with love and done in, in, you know, a kind of a consensus form. But I'm very fortunate in that sense. And um, so I'm lucky because with that support, it means I can cope doing things like this tonight. Whereas if I was on my own and trying to manage that through, I would not be able to be here, in all honesty, because she's who keeps me well. My sons keep me well. My mokos, when I see them, keep me well. And that's the essence also. It's their future. 
And that's why I said earlier, before we went on the air, is that the rangatahi of our disability community is hugely important. Why are we not? I mean, we have these leadership little groups, but I don't see many of them becoming leaders that go through those groups, those those training. Most of the leaders I've seen in our disability community are self-made leaders. And honestly, something's missing in those in those trainings because all they do is get jobs with them and then just perpetrate their own little nepotisms rather than getting out there and transforming change, which real leaders do. And the leaders that we have coming up in the next generation excite me. I have, they're getting more educated. So they're going through tertiary now. They know they can. We haven't got enough yet, but they're slowly getting in there. They are, I mean, I did a piece of research with Deb Payne at, at AUT some years ago, and we did it on the sexuality of, um, identity of physically disabled young women. And, you know, when I was going through my journey, nobody, they saw us as asexual, that we were drab clothed, drab wearing, no fashions, you know, none of that. Um, how dare you have a personality and an identity? You know, you were just expected to just knuckle down and be silent and invisible. Um, whereas today, these, you know, these ones, little bloody women, they sit there with their low-cut tops, their bright red, you know, <laughs> icing red tops, their mini skirts, their high-heeled shoes getting carried up in their wheelchairs up to the clubs because it's not accessible and they don't care. Their friends just lift them up. There's a change in attitude. They're not so afraid. That's, you know, me, I take, I get grumpy and told that we're going to go out for the night because it means I have to get out of my comfort zone. Whereas they go, yeah, let's go. And they're out there getting just as drunk as all the able-bodies and making the same risks. They are living life. And we didn't get that ideology 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And they are also challenging systems. They are challenging. And I really want them to challenge me, challenge my generation. I want them to also listen and learn. One of the problems we do have is we don't know our own history as disabled. We don't acknowledge our own history. And we do have a, a mutual friend who I've had to block on Facebook um, because he's he comes across a lot with uninformed opinions. And Oh, sadly, I, could, I could take a guess at that person. And, I could you know, take a guess. Yeah. Hey, he's young. But I really wish <laughs> he would get informed more. Yeah. Because I also really hate the way he attacks the older ones. But I would love to support him, but I can't because he won't listen. And sadly, a lot of our younger ones don't know our history. And so here they are making opinions on things they know nothing about. They don't know the eugenics background. A lot of them don't even know about Acteon T4 and why it is us older ones are getting all antsy and up in the arms about it when the younger ones have never heard of it. And they go, what the hell's that? And I'm like, oh my God, what did they teach you at school? You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, come on guys, why are you not getting informed, but then we need to talk about why don't we have some way of celebrating our history of who we are? Why are we not doing that? And we really need to. We should be videoing, keeping and telling our stories. We should be talking about the time of being institutionalised, the time, what happened when we first got into community living. What did that mean? Oh my gosh, you had babies? You know, we weren't even expected to. I remember about 15 years ago in Hamilton at Chartwell Square there, I remember um, going in and um, these young, this young couple, both in wheelchairs, came up to me and they both had two beautiful little girls, right? And they said to me, oh, who, Hannah? You know, you know, we've got these old people. They keep coming up to us and going, how did you do it, dear? And we don't know how to respond. I said, I'll just say to them, I did it the same as you, but with, obviously with a bit more creativity. 
Because look at our two beautiful kids, you know. I can, re I can relate to that. I can relate yeah. to that. People, people stare when they see me out with my daughter. They, yeah. they, they ask questions like it's socially acceptable just to invade somebody's privacy. Like, oh yeah. Ask things like, how on earth, you, you know, like, like I'm not gonna be offended by having my integrity as a parent questioned. And, and one thing I learned, Manalani Maya, professor at Hawaii University, um, I was in Hawaii in 2017 for the disability conference, Pan, uh, the PACRIM one, and um, I was presenting, yeah, and um, I actually got threatened in the ladies by, because I had short hair, and for some reason, I don't know why, but for some reason, a few people think I'm a guy, and the cleaner went, get out of here. Only for women. I looked at it and said, I'm a woman. And I stood <laughs> out because the day before, someone had got murdered uh, nearby at the Ala Moana Mall. And um, I was a bit nervous. So I went to my mate and we went to the manager and the manager went and had a word with her. And the woman looked at me strangely when I went back into the loo, but she didn't say anything after that. But this is the problem we have, right? People make assumptions. But Manalani said to me, and she taught me a, a big lesson. She said every because she was she's a lesbian woman and she's a bitch on the butch side and she gets mistaken as a guy all the time and she said laugh it off use humor and you know what i have and um and as a result i find that it diffuses situations so one of the things i was really nervous about was getting my muko kawaii this year and um it was time and it's my birthright and i decided and it was it took me 20 years to agree to do this and I was nervous about how the society would react. Well, so far, it's been okay except for one person. And instead of getting angry at her and storming off, I turned around and smiled back. And you know what? It just didn't become a thing. And so a lot of the time when I'm confronting disabilism, racism, whatever, I now try and smile. Occasionally, though, when I'm tired and grumpy and you've got me on a bad day, I'm afraid you'll get my bike, my bite and my bark. Um, <laughs> one of the things talk about... Um, people invading spaces. When I had my darling boy, Finn, who passed away in August, um, everyone would touch him. Everyone would talk to would invade my private space all the time. Children would pull his tail all the time. And you know what? I loved having him, but I hated going out in public with him because people are rude and mm. people have no respect or regard for disabled people and the private. They think we're public property. And that's a big problem. I am as private a life as what you guys are. If I don't want to engage, mm. I shouldn't have to. You know, I'm in the middle of a deep conversation with friends or whanau, and they just come up, oh, you've got a lovely dog, dear. Oh, you know, or I had, I mean, I will say there was some fun times with Finn in the malls because I remember going <laughs> to one in Hunter's Corner and I entered into the supermarket and I get to the first aisle and this woman screamed at the other end and went, dog, dog, and ran around the corner and went, oh, okay, she's gone. I went round the corner, she was there, screamed and went, ah, ah, went round the next aisle. So I followed her till she screamed her way out of the mall, <laughs> out of the shop, um, because it was funny. It was hilarious. You know, they, they, they don't understand. And I've had to educate a lot of people. But you know what? He was the most beautiful goofball I've ever had in my life. And I don't think I can replace him. Oh, but wow. So, so, so you're not thinking about a replacement? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> don't know. I will see. I'm not ready yet. Let's just say that 
I was devastated and I've only just stopped crying when I talk about him. So, you know, it's, it's going to take time because he was 12 years of my life and he was 14. So, you know, he was going blind and he was knocking into walls. But, hey, I thought, that's OK. I'm going blind. We can do it together. But then something serious happened and suddenly he deteriorated fast and died in my arms. So at least yeah. I gave him that, you know, he gave me joy and I gave it back to him. I gave him dignity and then... I'm sure he appreciated those years as well. Oh, he was. You know, I still wake up thinking I'm going to see him staring at my face two inches away from it in the middle of the night, <laughs> looking at me and breathing over me with his dog breath. But um, I miss it. I miss it. You know, I'm missing. I don't miss any farts, so that's fine. You know, when a dog farts, the whole house knows. So I don't miss that part. But in a way, I do. Because he was there. And I knew he was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so obviously... <laughs> Obviously, in your own time, uh, who, of course, but I mean, love for love for one can't uh, exclude no. love for another. But no, yeah, no. obviously, when when the heart is ready to love, it's always possible. <laughs> absolutely, and I absolutely agree. There you go, a bit of lighting, eh? Ooh. Oh, we can see you now. I, I, I was a bit worried about that. I was a bit worried <laughs> well, about that. <laughs> dark, okay, so I thought I'd better lighten it up. <laughs> But that's all right. You'll always hear me before you see me anyway. I've always been a loud girl, so it's my ADHD nature. I can't help it. And I'm quite, it took me years to accept that. Now I don't care. Whenever I meet people, I say, it's okay. You know, if I go into meetings, don't mind me. If I'm a bit ADHD, just tell me and I'll then know to just stop mm. and calm down. One of my friends. Yeah. One of my friends who just I saw a message earlier in the live stream say he was tuned in. He was medicated from such a young age through a Catholic um family because of ADHD. Oh. And he I just honestly he is one of the most kindest, beautiful soul, mm. but just will go a million miles an hour from the moment he steps in your house. I love hanging out with them and sometimes I'd love to hang out with them and imbibe a little bit because I could sit back, relax, and he would do all the talking. He oh, yeah. yeah. he, he's, he's a lovely person. He's an amazing, productive yeah. uh, member of society. And yeah, exactly. He's a great, he does great in sales. He did great in hospital. He did all, yeah. uh, never failed at something he enjoyed, but I just feel so horrible for him having to be medicated and yeah. made docile and, and, you know, vacant because yeah, no. his life and his, the way he w worked didn't fit in with his family and the school that he was a part of. And I think it was just so horrible. I just can't imagine what it would have been like. Well, you know, ADHD people could sell ice cream to an Eskimo in the middle of winter. So, yeah, and Inuit in the modern term, the time when I grew up, it was Eskimo. So, I need to remember to change names. Um, but, you know, my, my son, Yehusaya, he's 34, Josiah, um, pronounced Yehusaya or JJ for short. Um, he's 34 and he was medicated at the age of six for epilepsy and, and ADHD. And at the age of nine, he begged me to come off it. So we went to his pediatrician and said, look, because she'd diagnosed me. She said, I can see where he got it from. She knew immediately. And um, <laughs> for some strange reason. Um, but I said to her, well, what we did is we agreed to do a behavioral modification program and do it together. So we actually worked on reward systems together. And if I had been a good girl and he felt that I had done all of my chores and things, I put a star up. He put a star up if he'd been a good boy, and uh, at the end of the week, he could have a treat, and there was a range of options. And 
you know what? He's been off medication all that time. And all he does is use a little bit of dope if he's under anxiety. Because what it does is that, and he, I don't think he even does that much these days anyway. But what it did is occasionally, if he was out and he was feeling anxiety, he would then need that and it would calm right down and the anxiety wouldn't lead to an epileptic seizure. And because every now and then, because he has absence seizures, so he'd be standing up at a party and next minute he's sliding down the wall because he's just blanked out for half a second. And, you know, we have to get real. He, and he's completely enough. He's a manager. He works full time, bought his first unit. He's engaged to be married. So I can't say he's a failure in the system. Not all ADHD people fail. And what we have to do is stop medicalizing. Because some people, I've even heard them say, and I've said it myself sometimes, is that Maui could have been termed an ADHD because he was a runt of the family, he was a bit of a mischief, he was a tutu, and look what he achieved. You know, what we have to do, and in Maori culture, we didn't see ADHD as an issue because those tutu kids, we channeled them to where they were naturally had their best strength. You know, and this is why we need to look at it maybe through more of a Polynesian lens because we didn't see disability in a negative deficit way. Yes, in the old days, if you were so severely disabled at birth, you would have been killed because it was kind because there wasn't any way to prolong your life. If you had a short life, they eased it. But, but the, you know, the reality is, is that um, the, you know, we could learn so much of traditional cultures around how they did adapt around disability. Egypt, for instance, they actually have ex evidence of little people, people with haemophilia and other forms of disabilities who, would, who were mummified and were deemed high-ranking or they were buried with the kings or the queens because they were high-ranked within their system. Uh, in Africa, there were tribes that, in the, I think it's the Kigala people, they did demonise their death, but then that comes from a fear and ignorance. And same today, People abuse us out of fear and ignorance. So what we have to do is recognise that, you know, um, once you educate people, that fear and ignorance can go away. And a lot of people are just terrified. You hear it, eh? Oh, I wouldn't like to be blind. Oh, I hate to be deaf. Oh, shit, I couldn't cope with being in a chair for life. Oh, I couldn't manage it. But when you actually live with it, it's not that big a deal, eh? If you get the supports and everything in place that you need, it's not that big a deal unless you have to socialise which I've loved social isolation. And I admit, I don't want to go back out. I have so enjoyed it. I love Zooming. I love that. I don't want to go back out to people. I hate it. And if they get too close to me, I glare at them at the moment because, you know, they're touching into my space and I don't want them near me. So I have to deal with my social isolation issues at the moment. <laughs> Another one you had to put the light on. Huhana, I, I'm mindful of your time. We're way yep. over the time we that, that, we e that we emailed you about. So we'll we'll seek to wrap up now. And I'll give yep. Simon the first opportunity uh, for final thoughts or final questions, Simon. I think we've explored all the topics uh, thoroughly <laughs> that we plan to. I think uh, my time for questions is, is over. I'd just like to say thank you. Uh, Huhana for joining us. It's been a pleasure uh, to have someone who can so eloquently call on uh, evidence, but then also tie it into um, real, I guess, uh, conversation realm of, of emotion and thoughts and a human aspect. It's, you, you weave your, your arguments together so well, which makes it a pleasure to listen to. So thank, thank you. you. 
yeah and um and you just have such a well-mannered approach to these discussions so it's always it's always uh, enjoyable the time you know has flown by as they say it really um, is yeah, I'm not an adversarial own... lawyer. I'm a, no. I'm, I'm a mediation lawyer. I prefer yeah. consensus to adversary. Yeah, mm. no, that's right. And I mean, just personally for my own self, I've said this on a few of these live streams, is that, mm. you know, it's time to vote, um, yes. make an informed decision. And I've said, you don't have to agree with what I want to vote for, but I have the right to mock you if I think your decisions are silly, and you can do the same back. <laughs> Happy to hear it. But yeah, just go, get out there. Respectfully. And, yeah. <laughs> get out there and uh, exercise your democratic rights. Um, but yeah, that's it from me. Kilda. Thank you again. Kilda. Hannah, you, you want to make a good uh, comment? My good <laughs> friend and lovely assistant. I've just got to say thank you so much, Ho. Um, it's been amazing having you on. And I just want to ask you one last question. Have you had fun tonight? Yes. Thoroughly enjoyed <laughs> That's amazing. That's I amazing. That. Really appreciate it. I love a good conversation. Thank you. You did it easily. <laughs> just from me, Huhana, I mean, this has been mind-blowing. It's been a long time in the making. I've, mm. I've, I've, really, I've really admired working alongside you in various spaces. I've really enjoyed learning from you and the different projects you've done in the community. Um, thank you for everything you do, and, and I know you will continue to do. Thank you for being so generous uh, with your time today, particularly with this humble, <laughs> humble, very small early beginnings podcast. And I <laughs> and I just wanted to ask, as a segue to hand over to you, is there anything you would like to say to the audience or promote? I, I think I, well, I do want people to get out and vote, but make informed choices. But for our community, instead of getting impairment-based arguments out there and pushing around impairment groups, can we do it together and address the issues that we commonly have with each other or for each other that we all commonly experience? And then issues where there's difference, we could support each other in supporting those choices and those issues. So instead of, because one of the things, 20 years ago, we did a State of the Nation report for the Human Rights Commission, which was through Rosalind Noonan. And it was brilliant. We actually gathered and we were collective and we really, and it led to the NZDS, um, the New Zealand Disability Strategy. I haven't seen our community connect like that since. And I miss it. Mm. I love being able to swap the young ones around the ears if they get a bit <laughs> too fast. I like to be able to learn my, from them. My ears still hurt after that. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I will, but I will also hug you and support you yeah. when you, you know, when you're on your journey. So, yeah. the thing is, let's let's look at our history. Let's understand it. Support our seniors. Support our children. Our rangatahi. But also, let's do this together and let's deal it as human rights issues together rather than separately. And I am looking, I mean, whatever government comes in, I think we need to be seriously looking at a big gathering in Wellington and gathering on Parliament steps and demanding our voice be heard. Can you imagine if even a quarter of the over 250,000, 300, 400, 500,000 disabled in this country if they gathered, even 10% of us gathered on Parliament, could you imagine the impact that would have? 
they ignore us because we're too polite. Kiwis are polite, polite, uh, polite people. Mm. But just remember this. Rosa Parks started a civil rights movement by getting on the bus and refusing to move into the coloured section when they changed the barriers. We can't even get on the bus half the time. And yet we're not even chaining ourselves to the wheels. Mm. It's time we started speaking out more, but we need to do this collectively together and stop putting up sacrificial lambs as single voices when we could be speaking collectively, cohesively, well together. You what, know. what a great place to leave it. Huhana, I've said it probably a million times during our session today. This has been a mind-blowing conversation. I'm going to remember this one for a very, very long time. Thank you for your time today. Thank you to everybody at home for being along for this conversation. Remember, this will be available everywhere that good podcasts are and available on my YouTube channel later on but ladies and gentlemen thank you for being a part of the channel thank you for being part of the journey please stay awesome and we'll see you guys in the next one poor mario